Please open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. We draw near to the end of our study of Habakkuk. Um, God willing, this morning and next Sunday, we'll conclude our study. Um, Habakkuk, a minor prophet, dealing with some of the most significant questions we face. Where is God when evil reigns? How can God ordain, use an evil nation for his purposes? And how are we to respond to such a God? I'll remind you of the, the flow of the book because the third chapter is the resolution. The closing psalm of submission and praise is the model of how we should resolve, respond to these issues. Probably the most common questions I get when I talk to unbelievers is dealing with the problem of evil and where is God and why does he allow so much to happen? And that's where Habakkuk begins in chapter 1 with his complaint in the first four verses, looking around him in Israel, seeing the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. So Habakkuk begins in anguish and he cries out to the Lord, troubled by the evil around him in society. The Lord's first response is that he has not been inactive, but rather in verse 5, look among the nations, see, wonder, and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. And the Lord tells Habakkuk that just as he said he would in the covenant that Israel made with the Lord at Sinai, he is raising up a people to discipline them. Well, that then causes even more um, anguish, trouble for Habakkuk. And starting in verse 12 of chapter 1, he, he brings a second question of complaint. Oh, Lord, um, Look at verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the, righteous, the man more righteous than he? Um, how, how can you do this, Lord? How, how can you who do not approve of evil use evil and evil people for your purposes? And the Lord's response in chapter 2, in, yes, in chapter 2, makes it clear this dialogue is for us. In chapter 2, verse 2, the Lord commissions Habakkuk to write this down. And he makes it clear in verse 4, the central premise, God is righteous. He rewards those. He gives life to those who respond in faith and faithfulness to him, who in humble faith and faithfulness trust him. And those who are proud, puffed up in soul, they will be judged. That's, that's the basic principle. Nothing has altered this fundamental premise. This is the verse 2-4 that Paul twice uses to justify justification by faith alone. The righteous shall live by his faith, which is to say, Habakkuk, trust me. Keep trusting me. You will, you will have life. You will live. And we learn that God will, in fact, judge Babylon. He will, in fact, repay to them what they did. It will be fitting. It will be just. It will be appropriate. God is not taking a small view of evil. We looked through the five woes that end chapter 2. And in contrast to these people who would make a name for themselves, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple that all the earth keeps silence before him. 
The dialogue is over. And what follows in chapter 3 is a psalm, a song that Habakkuk wrote in response. He indicated he would do this very thing back in chapter 2, verse 1. I will take up my stand at my watch post, stand myself in the tower, look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He understood the Lord was going to set him straight and he would have to answer again. This is that answer. This is that synthesis and response. So we're only going to look at the first seven verses this morning of chapter three, but I'd like to read chapter three in its entirety, this entire psalm of a word of prayer and we'll begin. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheaf from your bow, calling for many arrows, Salah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses and surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy and the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Lord God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that the resolution, 
the confidence, the submission, the hope, the faith, the praise that is embodied in this psalm, we might grasp and see that this song might be on our lips. That you might encourage those who are struggling with, with the events of this life. That you might give hope and understanding and life to all those who live by faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. A psalm of submission and praise. The, the reason why I've broken this the way I have is starting in verse 3. Actually, we'll go back to verse 1. If you look at sort of the outline, you've got the superscription, the heading, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Then you have his opening prayer, really the only requests in the psalm, verse 2. And then starting in verse 3 is praise. And the praise is divided in talking about God and talking to God. So you'll look in verses 3 to 7, he's talking about. And then starting in verse 8, he's talking to. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Different commentators, different study Bibles might break this up differently, but that's how I've broken it up. Describing what God is doing and then addressing God again in verse 8. So we'll pick it up next week, God willing, in verse 8, and hopefully get through the rest of this. So let's begin by looking at the superscription, the superscription. And what becomes clear is this is a psalm, a song. And the, the pattern that is given in the book of Psalms is followed here. This has both a prescript and a postscript. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth, and if you look down at the end of 19, to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is one of the reasons people have suggested that Habakkuk may have some connection with the priesthood or be a priest his familiarity with temple worship and his right to include this. He's, he's writing this to somebody. So what I want to get from this is the following. First point A, this is Habakkuk's personal response to the Lord's answer. Back in chapter 2, verse 1, he understood, even as he gave his second complaint, I know I'm wrong, or at the very least, I'm off. I know there's things I'm not taking into account. I, he was confident God would answer him, and that God's answer would correct him. He didn't for a moment think he had God up against the ropes in a tight spot. Rather, I believe it's the submissive, faithful cry of a child. Father, I don't understand. Help. I, what is going on? And so even in chapter 2, verse 1, he understood he'd have to make another response. But because the Lord would set him straight, he'd have to process that and have a new synthesis. This is that synthesis. This psalm is his response. There's no more questions. There's no more whys. Well, there actually is rhetorically in verse 8, was your wrath against the rivers. But he's no longer posing deep philosophical questions to God. His, his, his soul is submissive, thankful, full of praise and faith. But point B, because this is given to the corporate psalter, to the choir master of stringed instruments, this is not just Habakkuk's personal synthesis. I mean, up until this point, been watching on the sidelines, and perhaps Habakkuk's questions aren't your questions. Perhaps you've got a different set of questions. And, but you can learn from Habakkuk's questions and God's answers. But here, by virtue of giving this psalm to the people of God, it becomes clear this psalm, this response, is not just Habakkuk's own personal response, but God gave this to his people to sing, to pray. Habakkuk's synthesis then needs to become our synthesis. This needs to be how we synthesize, how we process bad, terrible news for the future, 
God's sovereign control, how we deal with those issues. This is for us as much as it is for him. And, and this pattern of God writing songs, Moses does this in Deuteronomy 31. He writes a song for the people of Israel to teach them. When they cross at the Red Sea, he writes a song. So, so understand, this, this is given corporately now. This psalm is for corporate use. We're no longer sitting on the sidelines. This is a script God would have us sing. So we need to understand it so we can do that. Okay, that's the superscription. And we're going to take a little bit of time looking at verse 2. This is really the only request in the psalm. And it's full of faith and faithfulness, it's prayer. The, the psalm is kind of sandwiched by faithfulness. In verse 2, you get his, his declaration of, of his trembling, his awe, his fear. Then you get his request. And then the psalm ends with a commitment to faithfulness. Even if everything around me fails, everything I might put my hope in in this life, utter economic collapse, I, I will hope in the Lord. I will rejoice in God. So, so the psalm is capped by faithfulness. So let's take a look at his prayer. Verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So let's begin by considering his faith, his faith. Um, o Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Now that pairing of hearing and fearing is a common Old Testament one for faithfulness. Now, let me give you some examples here. In Deuteronomy 13:11, we read, "All Israel shall hear and fear and never again do such wickedness." Or in Deuteronomy 19.20, the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil. Or probably most notable, Deuteronomy 31.12-13, assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, they didn't have a nursery for this gathering, they brought them all, that you may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. And be careful to do all the words of this law, that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So, so I hope it's clear that coupling of hearing and fearing, taking seriously, is means to, to receive rightly, to receive by faith. I believe Habakkuk saying something like, as troubling as this is, I mean, his reference to your work links all the way back to five Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 5, look among the nations, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days. He, he has received what God says he is doing. I will discipline severely my people. I'm raising up a wicked people to do it. And Habakkuk has heard, and he has received this. It's of note that the three requests that follow are not, please don't change your mind, please no. He, he's at peace with. He's, he's come to accept by faith. Okay. He, he has heard and he fears. He's received this. That's why I'm talking about a psalm of submission. God has revealed his will. God has revealed his plan. And Habakkuk has heard. And even though it causes him to tremble, even though in verse 16, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters my, I mean, this has undone him, unmanned him. He is at peace with it. Yet, verse 16, I will wait quietly. I have heard and I fear. 
And that, that's ultimately what God is looking for. This is a faithful response. He's not, he's not excited about what's coming, at least not in the short term. He, he still is unsettled by everything, but he is at peace with God's control, with God's answer, with God's program. He has heard and he fears. And so as we try to wrestle with what the Lord is doing, that'd be the starting point. Will, will we accept from God's hand that he doesn't give stones when we ask for bread? That he doesn't give scorpions when we ask for a fish? I've heard and I fear. Followed by his three requests, they follow in parallel form with the word preposition in, starting them. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Let, let's talk about for a moment that, that phrase, in the midst of the years. I think the best understanding is the time period, the midst of the years, is the time period between the initial judgment of the Chaldeans and when the Lord will ultimately repay upon them. That time period where you, we haven't yet seen the deliverance of the Lord, the justice of God. I think that's probably the best explanation. In some sense, we live in that between the years. Because as you'll see, this vision of the Lord moving is ultimately fulfilled in the book of Revelation. This is ultimately apocalyptic. And so we live in the time between, in the years between, when we see these evil things happening and upsetting things happening in the world around us and the Lord showing up and making it right. I think that's the idea in the midst of the years. So what are the three things he wants done? The first is he's asking for life. In the midst of the years, give life. And I, th I think this links back to chapter 2, verse 4. God's promise. He's, I believe, praying God's promises back to him, which is a common pattern we see. The Lord says, let's look at verse 4 of chapter 2. Behold, his soul, Babylon's soul, is puffed up. It is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And he starts out with faith. Okay, I've heard, Lord, and I fear. Now, Lord, in the midst of the years, in the long time between now and then, give that life that you promised. That, that's what he's praying for. We saw this in Psalm 119 repeatedly. Revive me. Give me life according to your word. Strengthen me. He has accepted what God has said. Now he's asking for the Lord to do the very thing he's promised to do. In the midst of the years, give life. Sustain me. Strengthen me. Enable me. Habakkuk likely won't see the fall of Babylon. If he's very young and he lives to be a very old man, perhaps he will. Daniel lived that gap. But he likely won't see the judgment of Babylon in his lifetime. And so he's asking for the Lord to sustain him with strength and with life in the in-between years. Second, in the midst of the years, give understanding. In the midst of the years, give understanding. This is, of course, where this whole book began. I don't understand, Lord, what's going on. And then the Lord gives his answer. I still don't, I, I even more don't understand, Lord. And so in that difficult period where we're awaiting to see God's vindication and justice, he's praying for understanding. He's praying that the Lord would make it known. This is, this is a fine, again, the distinction between demanding, you must explain to me. It's the difference between the, if you have children, you know what I'm talking about. The difference between the why with the implied answer me of a capricious, proud, proud, 
child and, and the difference of a submissive child going, yes, father, yes, mom, but, but, but why? He, he asked for understanding. It was vexing him what was going on. And he's praying for himself and for the, the faithful remnant of Israel behind him. Lord, in those years, continue to give that understanding. Lord, would that those also wrestling with these problems, also struggling with what's going to happen. It's going to be horrible. If you read Lamentations, Jeremiah is, is undone. He is abased at the fall of Jerusalem. And Habakkuk is praying, Lord, to those who trust you, for those who hear and fear, give them that life that you promised and give them the understanding to process this, that they would not choke on this, but that they too might hear and fear and understand. In some sense, that's what this book is for, to give that understanding. It's okay when you don't understand to ask God, I'd like to know what you're doing, Lord. Please, please make it known. And then point three, in time of trembling, remember mercy. And the reason I put trembling in there in the blank is even though I think anger is a good translation, it links up with the same word translated tremble, and it most naturally does mean tremble or agitation, but it links up with verses 7 and 16, which I think is significant. He's talking about a time of agitation and trembling, which makes sense. It's when God pours out wrath. And so in verse 7, I saw the tents of Kushan and affliction, the curtains, the land of Midian did tremble. So part of God's judgment on the nations will be causing trembling. But then even in 16, there's a personal trembling taking place as well. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. So there's, there's a trembling that comes from God's wrath and his justice, but there's also a trembling from processing it. And I don't think Habakkuk has just one of those in view. In agitation and trembling, Lord, remember mercy. Remember mercy. Which, which the Lord has already promised to do. He's already made it clear this will not be a full end to Israel, a full end to his people. So Habakkuk's response, just get this, the maturity here. He, he's heard what God says. He's still unsettled by it. It's causing him to, tr to, to have tremors, his, his bones to quake, his knees to become weak. And yet he accepts it. He's heard it. He fears. And then he asks, okay, Lord, given what you're going to do, please give life, revive it, or you could translate it, him the, the one of faith. Do the thing you said you would do. And Lord, in these difficult years to come, give, give understanding. Give understanding like you've given to me. Give, give faith to comprehend and understand. And oh Lord, as you discipline your people, remember mercy. That's his prayer. That's his petition. That's modeled for us. His prayer of faith. He's, he's, at, he's come to terms with, he's accepted what God has said. He's not asking him to change his mind. And from there, he launches into praise. Now, I'll admit that when I first read this, and the first probably five times I read this, I didn't know what to make of it. God came from Mount Timon, 
and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Raised flash from his hands. There he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan and affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. What is going on? What is this? Well, he's, he's finding hope and joy in God. And what he's doing is, and here's your blanks, remembering the Lord's past judgment and salvation in anticipation of his future work. Remembering the Lord's past judgment and salvation in anticipation of his future work. And this vision of God showing up, that sometimes theologians call it a theophany, it's, it's picturing the Lord God himself showing up in presence immediately. Th that's what he's looking to. And he's couching it in the terms of the Exodus. It's what he has. We have more revelation. If you're in Dave Lample's class, the book of Revelation depicts some of this. But Habakkuk is describing God's future judgment and deliverance using terms of the past. The logic being, I know how God in the past did this. I know how God in the past stood up for, protected his people, judged nations. Surely the future deliverance and judgment will be of a kind. And so he uses those word pictures. Let me just read to you. Uh, Charles, Charles Feinberg tries to summarize this. In a sublime manner, the prophet now pictures a future redemption um, under figures taken from past events. The background here is the memory of the events of the Exodus and Sinai. Just as the Lord manifested himself when he redeemed Israel from Egypt, he will appear again to deliver the godly among his people from their oppressors among the nations, and he will judge their foes as he did the land of Egypt. Now, this, this is a key principle that I see again and again in Scripture. When you're discouraged, when you're trying to find faith and hope in God, the, the two things to do are to cling to his future promises and to look to his past faithfulness. And those two are married here. God has promised he will set things right. He will discipline the unrighteous. He will deliver his people. And so Habakkuk takes praise and hope in that future event, and he does it by looking at the past salvation. He, one of the most helpful and practical things you can do when you're discouraged is to rehearse God's faithfulness to your life and the lives of others, his faithfulness in Scripture. This, this pattern is again and again in Scripture. We'll look briefly in Psalm 77, but it's the exact same pattern here as there. Exact same pattern. Um, so let's, let's begin by looking at the glory of the Lord in his coming. The glory of the Lord in his coming. And again, the picture here is of God showing up. It's, it's over the top. It's, it's, it's enormous. It's monumental in its scope. The glory of the Lord in his coming. And first we get the approach of his glory. The approach of of his glory. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Salah. So what is that? Taman is the great city of Edom. Edom. Paran is a mountain opposite. 
And to make it clear that this is recounting the movement of the people of God with his pillar of fire at night and his pillar of cloud by day, that that's what's being pictured here. Listen to the similarity between this and the song Moses writes in Deuteronomy 33. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir. Upon us he shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the 10,000 of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. This is similar language. Habakkuk's actually adapting to some degree, I think, Moses' song. Um, when, the, when the people of Israel leave Egypt, they go to Sinai. From Sinai, they come up through Edom. And they enter and take possession of the land. And that's the language and imagery taken in this psalm. And so the idea is, when's the last great time God acted in defense of his people? When God stood up for them, redeemed them, delivered them, fought for them, destroyed wicked nations for them? It's, it's the exodus. We, we, we look back to the cross. We rightly focus our attention at God's ultimate acts of kindness, salvation, faithfulness at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and so we should. But again and again and again, for the Old Testament saints, it was the exodus they were looking to. That was the picture of God's saving work. That was the demonstration of his power. That was his demonstration of love. That was what he did to bring his people into a covenant relationship with him. And that's what we're looking at here. Another passage that helps us make this connection is in 1 Kings eleven eighteen. The Lord raises up an adversary for Solomon because Solomon's not been faithful. The Lord raises up an adversary for him. His name is Hadad. What I care about is when he goes down to Egypt, listen to the route Hadad takes from Israel to Egypt. 1 Kings eleven eighteen. They set out from Midian and came to Paran and took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt. See, that's, that's the path. Moses in Deuteronomy 33 shows the path goes from Sinai up to Paran. And now we see that if you're going to Egypt, that's the path you take in reverse. When you plug in verse 7, the tents of Kushan and Midian, it's really clear. Those are the powers on either side of the Red Sea, modern-day Ethiopia. Um, so we're looking at God moving in his presence, and his path of approach mimics the movement of the people at the Exodus. Okay? That's, that's the idea. The blank here, the same path as the Exodus. The same path as the Exodus. And the point here is this is meant to be a cause for hope and perseverance. A cause for hope and perseverance. Keep, keep your finger here. Go, turn over to Psalm 77. I want you to see the same way the same logic works. Um, and, and the logic is always, as you strive to believe God, and it's work. Believing God is work at times. There's a fight of faith. There is a fight of faith where you have to work at not growing discouraged, not believing lies. How do you, how do you engage in that battle? How do you fight back against doubts and unbelief? Again and again, the pattern of Scripture is these two things, holding on to God's future promises and looking intently at his past work. Look at Psalm 77. Let's pick it up in verse 7. And you're going to see we're dealing with similar issues here. The psalmist is deeply discouraged. He's asking questions. There's eight of them here in 7, 8, and 9 that are profound. And we can skip over them so quickly. But I want you to pause and imagine talking to a friend, your husband, your wife, your, 
your coworker. And this, any one of these questions is what they're wrestling with. Verse seven, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? He, he was favorable in the past, but just seems like all he's doing is whipping me now. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious and has he in anger shut up his compassion? Which I think links nicely with, oh Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. So how does the psalmist respond? I will appeal to this, to the ears of the right hand of the Most High. And what does he do? How does he, how does he fight this discouragement? How does he fight these troubling questions? He, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. I'm going to go do a Bible study in my Old Testament. Well, his Bible was the Old Testament, so they wouldn't call it the Old Testament. And look at the result of that. We, we go from these questions in 7, 8, 9 to, Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. With your arm, you redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And then we get further cl clarity. What Bible story, what work and wonders of God did he meditate on? Because remember, his solution is I got to remember what God has done. I got to remember the mighty things the Lord has done for me and my people. I must ponder on his work and meditate on them. Where does he go? Verse 16, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The cloud poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He's going to the Red Sea crossing in the Exodus. Now here's the logic. He, we don't know what he's dealing with. Habakkuk, we know what's troubling him. This psalmist is troubled by something so great that he's tempted to ask, is, is God breaking his word? Is God no longer kind? Is he only angry? Is he only mean? I know he used to be gracious, and he knows what he needs to do is to look back at what God has done. And as he considers the power, the faithfulness, the goodness of God in the Exodus, maybe he was reading Exodus 3, the Lord saw and heard the cry of the children of Israel, and he cared. He remembered his covenant with Abraham. And maybe he thinks of how God miraculously got Moses in just the right place at just the right time. How he preserved the children by raising up God-fearing midwives who wouldn't put them to death. How God orchestrated the events. He shut down the Egyptian gods, their pantheon, the Nile. He displayed his power again and again and again and again. How the Israelites left with riches, plundering the Egyptians. How when their back was up against the wall at the Red Sea, he came through and divided the water and destroyed the largest army on the earth at that time, drowning them. And he thinks through that and how God took them to a mountain where he revealed and made known his covenant name, where he entered into a covenant with them. And as he's thinking through God's faithfulness, he's remembering, he's remembering things he already knows. He's not learning about this for the first time. This is the power of meditation and remembering. What happens? Praise, hope spills up. 
This is the God who I serve. So no, his promises are not at an end. And no, he's not going to be angry forever. Of course not. How can the God who worked this salvation, this deliverance, not be worthy of my trust now? That's the rationale. So turn, turn back to Habakkuk 3. He's taking hope and God's ultimately writing the situation. And he does it by rehearsing, combining the promise that God has said in this book, I am going to balance the scales. I am going to judge the nations. My glory will cover the earth as the sea covers, the waters cover the sea. And he doesn't know exactly what that's going to look like. We have a lot more information on what that's going to look like when the Lord returns. And so he uses the language and he uses the pictures of God's past judgment and salvation as he anticipates his future judgment and salvation. This is meant to be a cause for our hope and our perseverance. So the author of Hebrews cites this book. We don't have time to turn there. We gotta, we gotta move on. So the glory of the Lord is coming. First, the approach of his glory, and then we get the extent of his glory. The extent of his glory. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Now that links with 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. And he's understanding that that promise of God's glory being revealed and seen will happen in the future when God himself shows up to judge the nations, when every eye shall see the extent of his glory. First, we have a glorious and divine radiance. It's blinding, it's splendor. I'm remembered of Moses meeting with God at Sinai when he came back down, his face was glowing. So bright, bright was the Lord's glory. He had to wear a veil. We, we are remembered that in 1 Timothy 6, 16, we're told that God, who has alone immortality, dwells in unapproachable light. This idea here. And the, the, the glorious radiance is also seen as glorious power to act. We get that in the reference to his right hand. His brightness was like the light. Rays, or horns, flashed from his hand. So that idea of a hand is your ability to act. So God is glorious and his glory spreads and covers and he is powerful to act. Let me give you one or two passages on this. In Moses' psalm, after crossing the Red Sea, in Exodus 15, he writes this, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. So picturing God's glorious radiance and his right hand is picturing glory that is present, shining, and ready to act. And the rest of the psalm makes it clear he is going to act. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. And even we learn as God's glory, you think of, just think of Sinai, the earth shaking, lightnings crashing, Moses' face comes back glowing, and we learn that Moses hasn't really seen the glory of God, not fully, because when he says, show, show me your glory, God says, you, you can't or you'll die. Moses was just seeing some, like when you crack a door open and light shoots through, you're seeing a little bit of it. 
We're going to see when we get to the Gospel of John that what Moses couldn't see before, the only God at the Father's side, chapter 1, verse 18, he has made him known. We beheld his glory. Glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ brings God's glory. Moses just got a peak. He got the afterglow. And that caused him to glow. That's, that's what he's picturing here is God's glory and his might. Next, verses 5 to 7, the effect of his glory. The effect of his glory. We get the before and after. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. There's this moving light. It's blinding, it's radiant. And it's led by pestilence followed by plague. And of course, you just think of the judgments in Egypt. Pestilence. Or you can think of God's discipline of his people in the wilderness with the snakes. Or you can think of the pestilence upon God's enemies. Even you go through the book of Judges and the Philistines get the ark and they end up getting boils and tumors. And so as you're picturing God fighting for his people, it makes sense that there's this withering disease about him that strikes his would-be enemies pestilence and plague. This also could be a reference to God's discipline as well, because in Deuteronomy 28, God makes it clear, the Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land. This is what would happen if they're faithless. This would happen when they break the covenant, which is, of course, why he's raising up Babylon to judge them. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, with drought, with blight, with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. But also for God's enemies, pestilence and plague. So then we're seeing the Lord arriving, as it were. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. So what's going on here? Well, the God of all the earth has arrived and now he measures his domain and shakes the nations. Prior to God acting, and this is this again consistent with the understanding of who the Lord is, he doesn't act rashly. He's not like the Canaanite gods who get into fits. He surveys the scene. He looks. And it's dreadful in a sense, but he looks. And first we get the response of nature, Right? He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Which is ultimately where this is going. Ultimately, this is about God's judgment of human nations and tribes and tongues. But first, the created order shakes and trembles. And again, there's a picture of this at Sinai with the mountain trembling and shaking. But this is absolutely what the future holds for the return of the Lord. And then the contrast here is with things that seem eternal and of old. Notice the language, the eternal mountains, the everlasting hills. His ways were everlasting. And the contrast is as old and as sure and as certain as the mountains are, the Rockies. God's older, more eternal and when the two rub, it's the mountains that break down because he is from everlasting to everlasting. 
And again, this is some of the language, some of the most awesome language in the Bible. Revelation 20, 11. I, this is just... Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. That's how awesome and mighty our God is. The picture is the earth and sky get me out of here, and there's nowhere for them to go. I think it's a similar type of terminology. That in contrast to the greatest, if you've gone to the Grand Canyon and looked over the edge, you've been at the top of a great mountain, and wow, this is huge. God dwarfs that such that when he looks at them, they are made into nothing. That, that's the picture. And this is, of course, what the future holds. 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on her will be exposed. So this is entirely consistent with the big biblical picture of the coming of the Lord. The, the truly eternal one with everlasting ways, he arrives and these great eternal mountains crumble. And that's the picture. The foundations of the world are shattered. The foundations of the world are shattered and his ways are eternal, truly. This brings us to the last point. The Lord's enemies tremble. The Lord's enemies tremble. Verse 7. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Now, who, who are these? Kushan, Kush, almost certainly is modern-day Ethiopia, and Midian would be modern-day Arabia. And these are the two peoples on either side of the Red Sea. And so the, I think the picture is at the splitting of the Red Sea, we're going to see the, the talk about waters and him riding in them, the, the, the parting of the Red Sea is in vision later in this psalm. The picture is the, tr the, the trembling, the agitation, the tumult brought upon these peoples. That when God acts for his people, the nations see and tremble and quake. I mean, just, just think of the testimony of, of Rahab in Joshua 2, 9 to 11, right? I mean, if you ever wonder why, why such a big showdown with, with Pharaoh, why such shock and awe, an epic work? Is God just showing off? No, God is not just showing off. God is trying to save a Canaanite prostitute by the name of Rahab. And only if report of this mighty deed gets to her will she turn to the covenant God of Israel. No, listen to this. How does God bring Rahab to faith? Through the report of the destruction of Egypt. Joshua 2, 9-11. Why does she take the spies in? Why does she commit treason? She takes in the people who will destroy her people and her town and her countrymen. That's treason. She takes them in because she switches loyalties to the covenant people of God. And here's why. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is exactly what happened when they came to take possession of the land. The nations that had heard were trembling and shaking. And I think there's also a reference here to um, 
the book of Judges. Gideon was kind of a timid guy. He keeps needing confirmation, keeps needing to be told, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. And so the Lord allows Gideon to overhear a dream of one of the men of Midian. What's, what's this reference to the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble? The tents of Kishon are in affliction. Might be a connection with this. When Gideon came, this is Judges 7, 13 to 15. When Gideon came, behold, a man who was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down. That could be the reference to the tents of Kushan are in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gibeon heard the telling of this dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. So we're only halfway, not even halfway through this psalm, but trying to tie it up. What, what, do, we, what do we learn from this? The first, just to reiterate, would be it, it's okay to be unsettled by what God is doing. It, it's okay to be unsettled and undone by, by what he has declared he will do. Verse 16, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. But we need to receive it. We need to hear and fear. Yes, Lord. And then pray according to what God has said. Praying his promises back to us. Yes, Lord, but you said the, the righteous will live by his faith. So, O oh Lord, give that life to me and to those who are of faith. And, O oh Lord, give understanding. This is difficult. This is troubling. This is vexing. It's hard. Help, help us understand. Help us wrap our minds around your purposes. And, O oh Lord God, in, in your wrath, remember mercy. And then... If you need encouragement that God will do right, that God is the Holy One of Israel, go and think about his mighty acts of salvation and deliverance. Because where this is headed is verse 13. Not to spoil next week. This is headed to verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed or for your Messiah. He's remembering God going out to battle for the salvation of his people the deliverance of his anointed, for the judgment of the nations. Remember God's saving deeds. Remember God's gracious work in the past. And as you look at how mighty he has acted, how faithful he has been, how relentlessly he keeps his word, I believe the Spirit will raise hope in your hearts up so that we might be patient as we await in those days in between his coming and his coming that we might be content and patient as well. Let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Lord God, um, how awesome and mighty you are. And we forget, we forget just how great is our God. We forget how awesome you truly are. And you are for us and not against us. Those who look to you and trust in your son by faith, and so, Lord, you, you have proven yourself to us again and again to be faithful. You have proven yourself to be a loving Father, a promise-keeping Savior. Give us the grace to wait patiently for your salvation, your deliverance in your time. 
Lord, in the midst of the years, continues to sustain us. In the midst of the years, Lord, give us understanding. And Lord God, even as you discipline in your wrath, remember mercy. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen.